welcome to The Bloodsucking Feminist, your number one Kiwi Scottish podcast focused on the three Fs, fangs, feminism and fangirling. I'm Catherine. And I'm Keely. And you're listening to episode eight, Boarding School Sucks, or The Moth Diaries. So this is it, our last episode for 2015, and I think it's a pretty good way to end because we're doing a Camilla-themed story and our very first episode, Vampires, Lesbian Vampires, now available on iTunes, was Camilla itself. Yeah, The Moth Diaries, which is a novel from 2002 written by Rachel Klein and later became a 2011 film adaptation directed by Mary Harron, is one of those books that had a pretty big impact on me as a teen. I actually have a very distinct memory of buying and reading the book, which is quite rare for me because I read so many books. So it was, let's let's take it back a, a, a decade. It was about February 2005. I was in town to go see Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy and I had money to buy a book and I was not leaving until I bought a book. And I saw the Moff Dyers on the shelf and thought, that looks cool. I like vampires. I'm going to read this. And I reread it so many times. I made my friends read it. I made my sister read it. And I didn't reread it again until pretty much this episode. And I was struck by how much, one, it's, it really holds up. And two, how much of the ambiguity just way over my head. Yeah, I actually so- think it is more ambiguous now than I did when I was younger. I, I pretty clearly thought, yep, vampires. But now reading it, was, I'm not so sure. Which I think is just testament to how good a writer Rachel Klein is. She really handles this subject in this very tricky tone. So for those of you who haven't read The Moth Diaries or seen the movie or um, just need a quick bit of a refresher, it's a story set sometime in the 60s or 70s, I think. Sometime It's in never the specified. Yeah, it, there are hints as to when it is. They talk about bombing Hanoi and the Vietnam War and the burning of the monk in protest, but there's no specific year date. It's presented much like Carmilla, uh, with a, an introduction and an afterword, that this, this is the diary of a young girl and the strange things that happened to her one year. And there's talk of her psychiatrist, this grown woman, she's reading it, thinking of it, putting it for publication as per her psychiatrist, because the psychiatrist notes that it's a very unique situation that she's had this one episode and nothing since. Now, and going through the actual diary, it seems that the protagonist, who is never named, by the way, she gets a name in the movie, Rebecca, but she is just the unnamed protagonist, the narrator in the book, has come back to boarding school. She thinks she's going to have the perfect year. She's got the great room. Her best friend's in the room across the bathroom. They get their own bathroom, which I suppose if you've ever been in any boarding school or college dorms or whatever is like a major deal but then a new strange girl has moved across the the hall Ernessa Block and Ernessa may or may not be a vampire and that's pretty much the crux of it isn't it you talk about the ambiguity of the novel Kaylee and the obviously the ambiguity there seems to be was Ernessa really a vampire or was the narrator really just losing it and trying to find any rationalization for her friend's spiraling downward and eventual death but reading it this time i actually thought it was less ambiguous really oh we're we're gonna we're gonna clash here i can see the potential to go either way but i read it when i finished it i read it less as was she crazy or was ernessa actually a vampire originally i just fell down to the side of vampire because a i like vampires 
and B, I didn't want to have another story about a crazy girl, and that was it was all about her being crazy. Nothing actually happened. But upon reading it this time, years later, with new experiences and different ways of just involving myself in critiquing pieces, particularly regarding mental illness and its treatment and interactions in text, that was it was less about that ambiguity and more about how people with mental illness are not believed and often it's not that she was crazy or she wasn't crazy but because she did have um some form of mental illness which is never exactly specified um, it is actually oh is it i missed it, Does it say at the beginning of the novel when she's she gives her sort of introduction to the book oh, by yeah. way of her her psychiatrist she says that her official diagnosis is borderline personality disorder with depression and psychosis but we, we actually have it open in very clear terms, which is this is a woman who has suffered from very severe mental trauma. She is interrogating from that perspective. Yeah, and so it makes sense if you've got someone who's already been diagnosed or at least believed to have a mental illness. If they were to say something like this, you just go, oh, they're crazy. Don't believe them. And they would probably hear that enough times and believe it the same way, same as well. Well, that was what was so interesting to me upon rereading this book. We talk about the protagonist as being a, a Mina character or a Laura from Carmilla, but there's also a lot of Renfield in there. As we noted in our Dracula episode, the original Renfield was not the solicitor who goes over to Dracula and becomes crazy as a result. In the original book, Renfield was already a patient at the institution where Dr. Seward works and was preyed upon from that position. And as a result, people tend not to believe him. They're very willing to exploit him and to prey on those weaknesses and dispose of him when the time comes or he's no longer of use to that particular power. And I, I see a lot of the protagonist in that, in the Moth Diaries. You know, the, her, her teachers don't really pay attention to her when they're not being outright hostile towards her. Her friends at school are quickly isolated from her either as part of Ernest's plan or because they think, oh, she's crazy, we don't want anything to do with her. A lot of the same tactics are used there, I think. In general, vampire fiction is a really surprisingly stark way of looking at tales of mental illness. Yeah, we, we've discussed this before, that people with mental illness and disability are more likely to be the victims of violence and abuse than the perpetrators of it. And I think this is an excellent example. The vampire of these fictions almost know that they can get away with this because they're not going to be believed. Although, in this case, it's more Ernessa has found a kindred spirit. Well, yes, she's found a kindred spirit because, and this is something the film doesn't do, for which I'm... One, it's one of the reasons I run so cold on the film, actually, despite a lot of its positive points that I think are overlooked. In the story, the protagonist is Jewish, and so is Ernessa, and that in many ways excludes them from life at the school because anti-Semitism runs rampant at this boarding school. They're also Not just from pupils, but from the teachers. Yeah, they're also described as actually looking physically similar, which doesn't quite work when they're actually putting that scene in the, in the movie because one is Lily Cole and the other one is Sarah Bolger. Yeah, I understand that kind of casting can be difficult, but yeah, I feel like that's like a like... contractual obligation on the part of Sarah Bolger. Yeah, Unis is like, don't we look alike? And, and you can just sort of see nope. Sarah Bolger's like, what are you on? And answer is possibly a lot, because there's a lot of drug use in the book and the film. But yes, anyway, both the narrator and Unessa are very obviously Jewish, and the character Dora has a Jewish father, and so the three of them are intersecting with their Jewishness in different ways. Before we go any further, I just want to say that neither Kaylee or I are Jewish. I'm actually not religious. Uh, I don't know. Gilly, 
do you want to i'm not a religious i don't believe in god yeah and that is one of the, the the core themes of the book is the jewishness of the various characters and how they interact with each other and characters interact with that and them this is as I, we said in the 1960s 70s if anyone does a specific date let us know we may have missed it i'm, in, I'm inclined to believe that it's after 1965 just because of the drug use not to say that it wasn't yeah. happening before that but it feels very in time with the rising hippie movement yeah because they're taking hallucinogens really and yeah so it's the later part of the um vietnam war because there is talk of the vietnam war and bringing troops home and bombing hanoi it's very open about the anti-semitism of many of the characters and the way that Ernesta and particularly the narrator are treated lucy is thin white blonde waspy and the narrator is dark-haired, more olivey skin, very obviously Jewish. And is discriminated against for such. She talks about ha- being on the receiving end of jokes about her nose, about her appearance, about her general swerviness and this idea that she is, quote-unquote, another. There's, um, a, there's a part where she talks about one of her friends, Betsy, saying that she and Ernesto would probably make good friends because they're the same type. And the line that the protagonist says is, she meant Jewish, as in you're the same type of creature from another planet. And then there's just the treatment from teachers as well. The narrator is barred from certain sporting groups and positions. The favoured girls, the blonde wasps like Lucy, are put into top levels of sport and activities despite any skill or ability and this is made very clear by lucy not having any while the narrator despite being good has to fight for one of the lower positions and, and it, she receives a lot of abuse from the day pupils she's a she's a boarder at this boarding school which further isolates her in terms of her peers she has the the tight-knit group that she's part of in her dormitory but as that becomes an increasingly isolated situation there's far less and less people to turn to and the only person who really understands this often discomforting experience of being one of the few non-Christian girls in this school and the way that everyone knows it. There's a point where they go to a, a Sunday sermon and the narrator talks about how when she first came here, she didn't know what to do when it came to singing the hymns. Was this, you know, was she allowed to do it? Should she do it? Would it feel bad if she did or whatever? And she eventually decides just to sort of quietly mumble them to feel part of the situation. Ernessa just sort of sits there and doesn't even pretend to do that. And when the narrator points out Dora, who has previously tried to talk up the, her, her Jewish part of her family, which in this case is her dad, she sort of sneers about how the narrator clearly has some kind of persecution complex. Jewishness is something that um, Dora can take on and off like a coach. It, for her, it's something that gives her a kind of elitist exclusivity. Yep. She, she seems to think, or at least the, from the point of view of the narrator, who thinks that it, Dory uses it to make herself seem more stylish and intelligent. But she doesn't have to put up with jokes about hook noses and swastikas across her table. Yeah, there's definitely different interactions there. The narrator is what people perceive to be obviously Jewish, and Dora isn't. So it is sort of almost described or feels like something she can you know put on take it off and not have to suffer any of the the stuff that the narrator has to deal with and so the narrator is not happy with that there is an interesting element regarding the relationship between the protagonist and Ernessa built on their jewishness there's a scene where the protagonist sees Ernessa reading is it rilke some german guy 
she's reading German poetry, and the protagonist makes a comment about that being the language of the people that murdered their people, the language of murderers. And Ernessa talks about seeing her religion as, the quote is, a burden, a cosmic joke. She sees her Jewishness as a sign that her, she is part of a, a long-running joke of humanity. And every language is the language of murderers. And she has great love for people like Rilke and the various other languages that she speaks. This is another example of someone being multilingual and highly intelligent, and that's a sign that they're evil. She speaks fluent German and also speaks Greek and Latin. Although the Greek and Latin is more of a dropping a hint that maybe she's a bit older than she seems, because she says, you know, she, she used to do it when she was a girl, and the narrator's like, um, you're like 16. What's up with that? Ernessa also talks about reading and loving Proust, which, if that isn't a sign that she's a centuries-old vampire, nothing is. Yeah, so almost like just gently waving a little flag that says, look, something's up. I'm a not what you think I am. I am exactly what you think I am. But then again, there's some interesting girls and what they love to read. So, I mean, Dora. Is it Dora or Charlie who talks about reading Nietzsche? Nietzsche, because um, the when when Dora dies, um, the narrator wonders who will finish that um, novel, that dialogue that she was writing. Charlie is the one who got high and stole a cab. Right. Charlie was always my favorite when I was younger. I don't know why. Because she got high and stole a cap. That would probably be it. I kind of wish they'd kept that in the movie instead of just having her chuck a chair out the window and yell at the headmistress. What's interesting about the way in which Ernessa and the protagonist's uh, Jewishness is incorporated into the vampire mythology, and there are you know, centuries-old vampire folklore in Judaism, but one of the big giveaway signs in most christian-centered vampire stories is they're uncomfortable around crosses and hymns and general christian god imagery and that's employed here but in a very different way yeah because the narrator has the same sort of issue of i don't know what to do this is not what i know i am not christian sometimes because a lot of the vampire folklore we see at least in fiction they are repelled by crosses and things like that sometimes it will be expanded to um you know, all religious symbols or the religious symbol of the holder only having effect. So a guy who believes in Christianity and everything could hold up a cross and repel a vampire, but he couldn't hold up something else and have the same effect. Or, you know, a Jewish person couldn't hold up a cross or an atheist couldn't hold up a cross. An atheist could hold up, uh, no, Reddit atheist could hold up a (laughs) copy of Richard Dawkins' books. Would that work? I'm just imagining a fedora being waved for the (laughs) Is it, well, is it a religious symbol? I don't believe in identity politics and I compel you because of that. Oh, God. And the vampire's just like, you know what? I I don't need to deal with this. You're probably going to taste terrible anyway. I'm just going to go. Generally in fiction, Jewish vampires tend to be more of a rarity. I mean, the biggest one is, the one I can think of immediately is Chagall from um, Tansa Vampire, you know, his old Ich bin ein jüdischer Vampire. When the or in the film, Ivy, have you got the wrong vampire? <laughs> yeah, the only joke in that film that lands. I like the bit where um, Professor is stuck out the window and has been left there all day, and you can just see him out the window still wiggling. But and if you want more information on that episode, go to bloodsuckingfeminist.com or iTunes and look up episode six, Vampire Musical Suck. Thank you. But yeah, this is one that actually directly interrogates the idea of Jewishness and vampirism and the intersections within. 
there's a line that Ernesta says, and I have to read this one out. She says it to the protagonist. Books won't save you. Your writing won't save you. The past won't save you. Mr. Davies won't save you. Daddy won't save you. You could try a crucifix. The Star of David never saved anyone. And you read that and you think, if Ernesta is a centuries-old Jewish vampire, she has seen some shit. The things that she has seen people like her go through at the hands of, you know, human monsters, the genocide, the displacement, the continued discrimination. No wonder she doesn't really have much faith in herself, or much faith at all. Yeah, I think it sort of hints that she's been around at least as long as the school was a hotel, but no other suggested sort of dates for her. A lot of the stuff is quite ambiguous in many respects, not just the crazy or vampire situation, but the elements of vampirism in this thing. And how yeah, old she's Ernesta kind of is. described as being more like a succubus. It's not so much feeding on her blood as it is her energy, I believe is the description they use. Well, there is a lot of references to blood. They describe Lucy's illness as being some sort of... They think it might be an autoimmune disease that is attacking her blood cells and causing her to become extremely anemic. And she does go through a, an extreme number of blood transfusions... Hey, regular reference. There's no visible signs of biting. Such, I mean, well, there's the scene where the narrator does walk on the two of them in bed together, and there is biting, but it's not blood drinking biting. It's just biting of the breast. Hey, Camilla reference. Basically, Lucy has no marks on her, which is one of the things that makes people think, yeah, you're kind of not actually seeing what is actually happening. But you never know. Which is the whole thing of this book, isn't it? Who knows? I think this is one of the problems, the reasons I have such a problem with the film is I, I would say the general tone of the piece is pretty good because it's Mary Harron. She's very good at juggling difficult tones. It's got that claustrophobic teenage girl school environment down pat. And also the same way they immediately react to there is a guy on the premises. Did you go to an all-girl school or a mixed one? Mixed. Ah, well then, you don't know this feeling, but I went to an all-girls school, not a boarding school, but there was still the uncanny ability to sense when the boys from the boys' college came over. <laughs> like, I'm just imagining a group of women like raising their head in the air like meerkats and going, testosterone. <laughs> and then, look, they're wearing skirts. Sometimes they came over to play netball, and some of them would wear netball skirts, because why not? But yeah, they actually had that sort of sequence in the movie where he's talking about female power, female sexuality, and all the girls just sort of like, I'm paying attention now. But yeah, probably sort of like that. If we knew that the boys were coming, everyone knew the exact moment they had arrived, or if something else happened, boy, did that word go around the school. Well, we have that here because they have a new English teacher. Yep. We had Mr. That, Davies? We had that situation at school too. Young, attractive teacher come in. He didn't teach English though. I mean, I give credit to the book here. I think it realises laying on a bit thick to have the hunky, sensitive, soul-searching English teacher who likes romantic poetry and assigns one hell of a reading list, by the way. Yeah. The entire reading list is basically Rachel Klein going, and now we're going to foreshadow everything. Yeah. So the it's list still an includes... interesting list. Oh, it's a fascinating list. So the list includes Carmilla, obviously. You have uh, Serenity Vashter, the short story about a sickly boy who invents a new religion based on his pet ferret. It's really good, honestly. That's amazing. There's The Black Spider by Jeremiah Scott Health, which is a precursor to Lovecraft. It's a story of this 
when the devil comes to town to convince the people there that he will help them with their crops if they sacrifice an unbaptized child to him. They decide to basically trick him out of this by immediately baptizing babies when they're born, which leads to spiders coming out of a woman's neck, as you do. But it's the traditional kind of charismatic devil and the residual guilt that this creates in a quote-unquote good town until salvation comes. There's Rappuccini's Daughter by Nathaniel Hawthorne, which is about this a daughter that has become completely immune to the poisonous plants that he is growing for his research, but as a result has become poisonous herself to the touch. She's basically like baby poison ivy. There's also a couple of novels. There's The Great God Pan, there's My Sister Antonia, The King in Yellow, which is another short story collection, which is very Lovecraft heavy. Or Lovecraft, it was ultimately inspired by, I should say. And then there's a, an early crime novella called The Jew's Beech Tree by Annette von Bosshusoff. I apologize, Germany. But th- it's a very sturdy reading list that I feel Recline probably used as her reference points herself. There's a lot of stories of you know, weird, decadent horror, of trickster gods and poisonous women and the relationship between good and evil, displacing of gods with new ones. It's the kind of thing that would make one hell of a lecture. Yeah, it's the type if, of thing I know. would love to take, actually. I would love to take this class. The book itself is very much about stories themselves and how they are employed and how people use them as reference points to understand the world around them. The protagonist starts to see Ernessa as a vampire because she's reading Armilla. Or does she see... Is it because she's actually recognised in signs because she now knows them or is she just bonkers? Well, that's the ambiguity of the yeah. story, isn't it? But you also have one of the girls is reading Nietzsche, and she uses that as basically the touchstone for her own growing philosophy, no matter how incredibly whiny and self-absorbed that gets. Ernessa herself is very deeply rooted in literature. She is constantly seen reading. She talks about the things that she likes to read. She finds great comfort in poets like Rill. Their English teacher, Mr. Davies, is, being, is described as the kind of guy who would like reading Keats which I feel like is their ultimate come-on line at some point. It's a very literary story, and I think that's one of the reasons I also have a bit of a problem with the film. I don't blame Mary Harron for it. I feel like when the film was, you know, greenlit, there was a lot of, you know, this sounds quite smart. We should, like, take about 40% of this out. I also think just by virtue of changing it to a film, a lot of what makes the book good would have automatically been lost because one of the obvious things is it has to come down more on a side of the ambiguity. Which is tough to do, but Mary Farron also did it. It was called American Psycho. Yeah, and I think, again, she sort of mostly managed to do it, but it's just a bit more difficult than, you know, here's actually a, a teenage girl's words as she wrote them with a little bit of context of she's seeing a psychiatrist to make you really wonder why. Had it not had that forward and afterward and everything, you would not have gone in with such ambiguity. That's true, but I think the novel is stronger for having that element. exactly. To actually directly tackle the mental illness in a way that... I can't really blame Dracula for not doing it. It was 1897, and psychiatric care at that time was not good. Yeah, (laughs) to put it bluntly. (laughs) To to put it mildly. So it almost sounds like kind of ahead of his time. And yet yet it was still terrible. And yet they still keep depicting him as being this nihilistic morphine addict who doesn't care. And goes on to become Jack the Ripper even though the timeline doesn't work. Oh, we have I, we have so many feelings on Seward. We have feelings on everything Dracula related. That's why you're here. We have good and bad feelings. 
But I primarily have good feelings about the Moth Diaries. Yeah. Partly because it was this book that had such a big impact on me when I was younger. Yeah. But also because it is an explicitly woman-driven tale in a genre that we have, you know, talked very heavily about its feminist credentials at times. Or like there but are this is one where there are almost no men. Yeah. The only men are Mr. Davies and a dead father. Oh, and the, um, the night guardsman. The girls like to sneak out at night because that's what teenage girls like to do. And they've sort of become chummy with the, the night guard who, you know, is like, if you can guess what I do for my day job, I'll let you take all the candy. And like, sweet. And they have to come up with three guesses. They have three chances. First two guesses are absolutely stupid. Like, they just, I think one of them's high the second time. So they just come up with something weird. And then Anessa comes along and she's like, it's obvious, he's a mortician. And she's absolutely right. And that's one of the, the, the creepy things, that she can smell death. You or can't she just smells it from aldehyde. From yeah. aldehyde has a really strong smell. Yeah, but none of the others can smell it and everything. So, Or they just don't or they can smell it and they don't know what it is. Yeah, because she does say that she even saw her father in the mortuary. And she won't forget that smell. But smell is actually a big thing, because the narrator complains a lot about the smell coming from Ernest's room. It's the sickly sweet decay smell. And Which, given this is a, an all-girls boarding school in the 60s, that could be anything. I mean, yeah, much, of, much of this novel is really a pretty standard, if far trippier take on the, the sort of strange and very inimitable ecosystem of boarding school life. Because it's really its own kind of civilization. And if you look at decades of stories like, you know, from Harry Potter to Just William to some of the early Enid Blyden books, the, the very idea of having this, you know, this magical school that you go to and you're all friends and you have rip-roaring times and here it's just, you know, we're going to get drunk and take drugs and then read poetry. Which is possibly more accurate. That's what some people would love their high school boarding school experience to be, I think. Just because but there's they're so like much a... cooler than me. They're like <laughs> rebellious and they love poetry and... They talk about each other's breasts a lot. There's more talking about breasts in this book than I've read in most books with male protagonists. That's true. You think the teenage boys in YA are obsessed with boobs? Or maybe not, depending on the There are scenes where where girls are just, like, taking off their clothes and saying, can you just check if my nipples are hairy? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, that was the one I was thinking of. But they'll also take baths uh, in front of each other and with each other. Well, that's what's interesting to me about the story is it doesn't feel exploitative, but there is a very kind of exploitation genre style to those moments because they become so heightened and so potentially driven by either drugs or general mental illness or sex or sex sex blood and death is what the teacher says in the all vampire stories driven by yeah or he doesn't film because they're constantly talking about women's bodies um having sex with boys boys having sex with girls they're just like this small group of horny little teenage girls that would think would be more in a boy story but it's not it's a girl story and girls are just as concerned about bodies and sex and what's it like and when am I gonna have it and who's having it there's even a bit where one of the girls goes off to have sex with this guy she, she, she's with and she has her friends come along as guards to make sure that nobody comes along and spots them having sex in the field this is this a thing you all go out at night and you know keep watch who knows but they're all intimately involved in the sex lives or lack thereof of each other They talk about which teachers are lesbians, which teachers might be lesbians, which teachers are definitely not lesbians, which teachers just dress like lesbians. (laughs) You sometimes Um, run out of things to gossip about in these situations. Apparently. 
And then they discover that their teacher and his wife actually write pornography, which is probably like the, the either really extreme pornography underground stuff or it's like super mild. Who knows? The teacher mentions the three things that all vampire stories have are sex, blood and death. But one of the things they also have a lot of is the exploration of female sexuality in particular and the power of that and the discomfort it causes in other people. The big One of the big defining themes of Carmilla itself is the idea that two women gaining pleasure from one another is somehow evil and should be destroyed. There's no penis. Except for that one really creepy teacher. Who everyone fancies, but, you know, he's very willing to yeah, jump well, on basically a 17-year-old girl. Well, the narrator is kind of like, you know, he's this teacher guy. The narrator is almost more someone I want to sit down and actually just, you know, say, so, do you want to talk about the way you like girls? She definitely does seem to be leaning more towards liking girls than liking guys. She, it could be because of the boarding school thing and the, the lack of male interaction. But she's much more fascinated by the bodies of women and the sexual elements of thereof rather than the idea of boys. She's kind of like, so I'd have sex with boys and that is, that's it? And she even isn't really into the teacher the same way that everyone else is. Later, thing mentions that she's been married and has a child and has a daughter of her own. But there's no indication of what her sexuality may be, if at all. Yeah, I mean, we've, we guess that this film takes place about 1965-1966, in which case it puts it pre-Stonewall. It puts it at a time where, you know, you could lose your job for being gay. You, could, you couldn't really... The idea of living out was almost impossible. And unfortunately, it still is for a lot of areas around the world. And unfortunately, in America, there are still places where you can lose your job for being gay. Yeah, you can legally but, get married on... Saturday, have your honeymoon on Sunday, go work on Monday and be fired. Exactly. Uh, So we have a protagonist who is isolated from the the student body and the teachers because of her Jewishness. There's no way that she is ever going to talk about her concerns of sexuality to any of these people. Even then there's the whole issue of is she gay, bisexual, asexual, straight or or if it's the that hyper-sexuality, hyper-romantic issue of all these girls just living together and going through adolescence together. That everything's, you know, everyone's thinking about their bodies and the way they are compared to everyone else's. Are they tall? Are they short? Are they big-boobed? Are they small-boobed? Do they have boobs at all? Who's had their period yet? Who's stopped having their period because they've lost so much weight? Who's eating? Who's not eating? Everything is just hyper. It's so extreme because everyone's trying to find out where they are in relation to everyone else and therefore what is normal. And are they it? Which is the theme of vampire fiction in general, or one of the themes. Yeah, teenage girls and vampires tend to have a lot of crossover and themes, which is why they work so well together. Like, two, two great tastes that go so well together. Although maybe the teenage girl is the great taste, who knows? <laughs> It's really the, the peanut butter and chocolate of genre themes, isn't it? I've just previously mentioned um, the relationships that the girls are having with each other and their environments, and one of them is who's eating and who's not eating. Now, if you've ever been in amongst teenage girls or women or any sort of group that has that societal pressure to look a certain way, there is the whole, what am I eating? What is she eating? How does she stay so thin? Why can't I be like that? Maybe if I don't eat, maybe I'll just eat anyway because I'm never going to look like that anyway. Or just food is just way too delicious. Nom, 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 nom. Women and girls and people in general, female identifying people, have relationships with food. We have to eat it. But it does stuff to us. And in this, again, this hyper world of teenage girls all in together constantly, they are watching each other at every meal, every class, every every interaction. 
in this gossiping world, everyone's watching who they eat. And they do talk about this a lot. They talk about a girl who was at school and how she stopped eating, how she, you know, lost weight. She started looking like a skeleton. Her period stopped. And apparently they told everyone this. Her period stopped. She started growing fuzz to keep her warm because she had no more body fat. And this comes up in the story because Ernessa doesn't seem to eat. If Ernessa is a vampire, there is a very logical reason why. But it's another marker of, you know, how she's different and weird and why they're watching her. Or at least why the narrator is watching her. Because they, they talk about how skinny she is, how she has, like, no boobs and stuff like this. And it's very obvious why they chose a very tall, slim model like Lily Cole. Although Lily Cole is much more curvy than Ernessa in the book. Because she's got that tall skinniness that is mentioned and coveted a lot in the book. That's Which also much. that also fits with the the time period of fashion. If this is the time we think it is, this is the era of of Twiggy, of yeah. the miniskirt, Nancy Sinatra and the boots. It's that very you know that type of body that was very in vogue. Mar- you know, Marilyn Monroe is gone, and they've moved on to the willowy statuesque women who kind of became the first era of the supermodel. So if these girls are probably you know, consuming the media that they are avail- that's available to them, which would probably be magazines. It's just chance- the chances are these are the kind of bodies that they're seeing, as well as all their own, because they are just constantly naked around one another. Yeah, it's like it's almost like some teenage boy's wet dream. The school full of girls, and they're just constantly naked and looking at each other's boobs. Which side of the story do you come down on? Crazy or vampire and crazy? Um, I don't know if I really come down on a side. I think the ambiguity is the point. Mm-hmm. And to try and decide that, you know, it's just her, you know, mental illness manifesting as vampirism or there is actually vampires. I don't think it really, you know, ultimately matters. This is a story of a woman interrogating her past from a clearer perspective or potentially clearer perspective and understanding how she may have come to the conclusions that she did. Yeah, it's like how, as I was saying earlier, it's become less a story about is it crazy, is she crazy or was it actually a vampire and become more a story about how having a mental illness means that you judge what you think you see or what you see differently and how people judge you and your actions differently she could have been seeing an actual vampire she may not have been but because she did have a mental illness she was not going to be believed Does it's make- this con- it's a contrast of the most powerful people in this story are women but the ones with the least power are also those women They give and they take it away. Yeah. So before we touch on the movie, do you want to have anything to spring up about the actual vampire mythology as it seems to be in the story? Because it seems to touch on more of the traditional ideas than the modern blockbusters. Well, that's grounding it in the the Carmilla mythos in that way, which ties into, well, is she imagining it? Is she, you know, joining the dots where there are no dots? Or is she savvy to to the plan here? Well, the, the funny thing is they mentioned that um, Carmilla has a unibrow, right? Which is actually more traditionally, well, actually, like really traditionally, a sign of a werewolf than a vampire. So who knows? Maybe it actually was just that Ernesto was actually a werewolf the entire time. <laughs> that would have been an amazing twist, wouldn't it? Uh-huh. But I think there are certain ties as well to Jewish traditions of vampire folklore. The one that stands out to me if you read the Wikipedia page, we did more research on this, but Wikipedia page is a good place to start. Uh, there are vampire traditions um, among European Jews tied into medieval ideas of the story of Lilith. And Lilith features very prominently in these stories, but it's also worth remembering that Ernessa Bloch is a German name. 
and she talks about her love of the German language. It's quite possible that she is German, or at least of German descent from a few from a century back or whatever. The story of Lilith is it changes depending on the perspective of how it's been told. It's one that vampire stories themselves has so many different interpretations. But the idea of Lilith being this is nothing new. Basically, you know, God made Lilith and Lilith, you know, was too much of an independent person. So he tried again and made Eve. Lilith's worshippers claim that Adam attempted to rape Lilith or that he may actually have done so, which prompted Lilith to flee from Eden. I remember I had a religious then, studies um, teacher who told the story of Lilith and he, his response was basically she wanted to be on top. Yeah, that's the general thing. Lilith, according to one group, Lilith enjoyed an extensive sequence of affairs with both Yahweh and Lucifer, who were gods of their own gardens. Maybe she was on top. <laughs> but basically, as you can see, um, even in the world of darkness of, you know, Vampire Masquerade and Werewolf the Apocalypse and everything. All the, they have various religious interpretations of Lilith, even though... You, okay, you need to go off and play um, uh, Vampire the Masquerade Bloodlines at some point. Because you get driven around by a taxi driver who may be Cain, the first father of the father of all vampires. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. You know, he's just a, I will take you wherever you want to go. I will lead you. And there's hints that maybe he's actually upping your generation and making you more powerful. It's not actually confirmed in the game, but his um, text files are all labeled as Cain. And the Malkavian, who is crazy, but has, you know, the extra vision, of course suddenly starts to freak out and realises that, as he or she realises that um, this might be Cain, the father of vampires. And to tie this back, we'll be talking about Lilith from the point of view of Jewish folklore, but she's also a really common feature in a lot of the romantic art. So people like Dante Gabriel Rossetti has a painting called Lady Lilith. She's featured in a lot of poetry of that time. So basically Lilith is supposed to be a, a short term for evil, evil, slutty, slutty lady. So, ladies... Women, am I right? Mm-hmm. There's a lot that she gets right here in terms of tone. I generally like Lickle. I think she looked apart, but I think she also relies a little too heavily on the, the sort of spooky-eyed, oh, yes, like kind of voice. Yeah, but how, how much is that is direction and, right, you know, writing, exact, you know, that sort of thing? I, I just don't think Lily Cole has much range. <laughs> she yeah. seems to play that in every She's part. a perfectly lovely person, and I, I love her to pieces. Who knows where she might go? There's a couple of big differences between the book and the movie adaptation. The movie adaptation mo- removes the woman looking back on her own past element. And it updates it to the modern age. So there's a sequence where all the girls are playing um, rock band or something like that. Which I do love the fact that it has all these scenes of just girls doing girl things together. They're just hanging out, doing all sorts of things. But the biggest thing, biggest thing that has changed from the book is that it removes all elements of the Jewish themes and of the characters, which is a big thing and not a good thing because you erase these Jewish characters and their identities. If nothing else, it explains exactly how some characters are favoured and some characters are not because there's no way that that comes across in the movie why Rebecca, in this movie she's given a name, is so disliked and put on by some of the staff, whereas others are favoured. Plus, I think it gets a good tone, but I think it loses its sense of place and purpose by yeah. stripping so much of the story out in that way. And I think that's Mary Harren's fault. I feel like a lot of that was market research mandating by yeah. some fault, you know, faulty market research mandating. The movie itself, when you cut out the credits, is only about 75 minutes, which is not very long at all, is it? I mean, the average movie length these days is 90 to 110 yeah. minutes. This doesn't even come in under an hour and a half. 
it's shorter than an episode than the opening episode to a season of Survivor. It's, and yet, it still feels a little bloated at times. Yeah, I think if it could have been a bit better if it had the extra twenty minutes just to put in a few more details, give it a bit more time between you know Ernest's arrival and holy crap, vampire lady. It does I, I wonder if this film was longer. I mean, if, if in terms of pacing, it's a little inconsistent, and I wonder if that's why. Because this movie was kind of dumped on pay-per-view, I believe. I don't even think it got a similar release beyond festivals. Which is sad, because it's not the worst vampire film Again, I've ever seen. You know, obviously the biggest issue I have is the removal of all things Jewish from this. But a lot of books probably wish they had adaptations as bad as this. What I really want is another book by Rachel Klein. This is her only novel to date. Mm. I, I hear she publishes short stories in a lot of magazines, newspapers and stuff, but I've never found any of her stuff. Sorry, I found an interview that Mira did and she's talk, she talks about it being most punk film. Um, like, you could have, if you'd kept the setting to the late 60s or made it, moved it to the 70s, you could have made it a punk story. But it, it's just, it's a little too sanitised for that. You know, the moving of the setting, the stripping of any of the, the rougher edges, the outright refusal to even tackle Jewishness. With all these films, you have to wonder where in the chain the decisions were made. Particularly for a woman filmmaker. You know, Mary Hira is a brilliant director, and yet she has... The last film she directed was a TV movie of Anna Nicole Smith's life. Oh, boy. The opportunities are just not there for women. Women don't get to make mistakes in film, remember? They get one shot at it, and then all of a sudden no woman ever gets to work again. Yeah, and if they're successful, they still don't get to work again. And I definitely imagine with a movie like this, with a very feminine story by a female author, with a female director having some guy who thinks he he totally knows what's going to be marketable coming in and enforcing a few changes. Not saying that a woman can't do something that is anti-feminist or racist or whatever, but in the controlling world of film, it is quite easy to imagine a man coming in and making these decisions. Yeah, we can only speculate here, but... Maybe it, maybe it was Mary Heron all along. Maybe it wasn't. Give the movie a shot. I mean, it is under 90 minutes. Check out available streaming services for more information. Definitely read the book. It's wonderful. The book is amazing. And the, the movie is really visually quite stunning. There's some really lovely oh, the cinematography is lovely. So I think that's it for 2015. Hooray! This will be up after Christmas, so I hope you guys had a fantastic holiday season. Um, I will probably be dead from food and work. I'm not sure what Kaylee's up to. Food, drink, books. Thank you for joining us for this first year of the podcast. Way more people have looked forward. Yeah, we're like into three digits, which is like two digits more than we actually expected. And we hope you'll join us for next year. And we're going to talk about Anne Rice. Just an interview with a vampire. Yeah, because there's just way too much. What else do we have planned for 2016? Kaylee? We're going to delve into Dracula again. We're going to be talking about Nosferatu, which uh, resembles but is completely illegally distinct from Dracula. It's an original creation, like Ricky Rouse and Model Mutt. <laughs> there is a Simpsons quote for everything, and I know a good chunk of them. We have a general schedule set out. It's not set in stone. Yeah, we, we might are open come to suggestions. Yeah, we might go, oh, 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 can we read this, watch this, do this? Yeah, there may be breaking vampire news next year that we have to cover. Our general schedule is such. January, we're going to talk about Interview with the Vampire by Anne Rice, both mm. the film and the book. February, we're going to talk about Nosferatu, which is free to watch online. It's, it's in the public domain. You've got no excuse for avoiding it. 
March, we're going to talk about A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night, the first, as far as we know it, Iranian feminist vampire western. April, we're going to talk about a comic book series called The New Dead Guardians. It's a limited series. You do not have to read decades and decades of backstory for it. And in May, we're going to tackle Bram Stoker's Dracula, the Francis Ford Coppola film, which has the world's greatest costumes and the world's worst accents. As always, a lot of this is open for discussion. Do you want to join in? Feel free to do so. Is there a topic you'd really love us to cover? I just want to point out that stuff we study doesn't have to be feminist or have any feminist content. You can interact with things in a feminist manner when it isn't feminist at all, and that's part of the whole thing. Because, for example, as we were discussing in the last episode, not too many female characters in um, what we do in The Shadows, but lots of discussions on the deconstruction of masculinity and the pressures of being masculine in our society, which is a feminist topic. But yeah, there's so many vampire stories that we could do, that we want to do. So that concludes episode 8 of Bloodsucking Feminists and the final episode of 2015. Thanks for listening. Thanks for supporting our podcast. Please tell your friends, rate us on iTunes, spread the word. Yep, you can find us on bloodsuckingfeminist.com, on Twitter as at bloodsuckingfem, or contact us via email at fangmail, F-A-N-G again, fangmail at bloodsuckingfeminist.com. Have a very happy Hogmanay, and we will see you in 2016.